0: Hello, Three Song Story listeners. If you're hearing this out of my voice, then you're listening to the full version of the show. And I just wanted to give you a warning that this week, one of our songs is 24 minutes. So if that is too long for you to listen to, then you're gonna wanna stop now and go to listen to the short version, either on our website or by downloading the program uh, wherever you get your podcasts, like iTunes or uh, any podcast app that you use. If a 24-minute song is fine by you, then... Keep
1: listening.
2: One, two, three.
0: three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that wields music and the songs that touch all of our lives with our guests to make top notch storytellers and story hearers out of all of us. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. My guests today are two names well-known to local readers and lovers of storytelling, Amy Bennett Williams and Roger Williams. That's right, we're trying out our first two for today on Three Song Stories, so hang in there, here we go. The beginning of Amy Bennett Williams' short bio reads like the storyteller she is. She, quote, came to the news press in 1988 as an ashtray-emptying, obituary-writing clerk-slash-reporter, then moved through a series of assignments at the paper, covering everything from cake contests to tuberculosis outbreaks, end quote. It's pretty hard to say all that. Amy left the paper for a while to edit Gulf Shore Life magazine before returning as its Lifestyles editor in 1988. These days she's a feature writer and columnist. Her current job titles are watchdog and storyteller. Her pictorial history book, Along the Caloosahatchee River, was published in 2011, and the Fort Myers City of Palms, A Contemporary Portrait Coffee Table Book, which she was principal writer for, was published in 2017. And last but not least, her Sense of Place essays air each Friday morning on WGCU Public Radio. Amy lives in Alva with her husband, Roger, two sons, and an ever-changing and well-documented menagerie. And speaking of Roger, his short bio, unsurprisingly, also begins with a Writers Flourish, quote, Roger Williams was born long ago and far away west of the mighty Mississippi River an indian name with fewer english letters, only 11, than the colossal Caloosahatchee river, which contains 14. End quote. "Roger moved to Florida in 1994 to work almost 4 years happily for the news press, especially happily after Amy agreed to marry him," paraphrasing his bio. Now, he got an undergraduate degree from the University of Kansas and a master's from the Columbia University School of Journalism. In his life, he's worked on farms, the Union Pacific Railroad, he's taught schools and worked for colleges. He wants lived in England and spent three years as a Marine Corps officer. These days, he writes a column and feature stories for Florida Weekly and has already been established, lives in Alva with his writer wife, Amy, etc., etc., etc. Hey there, you two.
2: Hi. It's
0: nice to see you somewhere besides Hickey Creek.
2: It sure is. <laughs> or Futrals. Yeah. yeah. Good morning.
1: Well, as long as there's no... Uh blue green algae in the creek it'd be all right
0: yeah well that's exactly right um okay so this is the first time that we've done uh the two for show the what i pitched to you guys was you know pick a song each from prior to having come together and then pick a song since you came together so we're gonna make this up as we go we're gonna start with you amy what was the musical background of your childhood
2: it was incredibly, deliciously diverse. Uh, my father is a real opera aficionado. Okay. And so my weekend childhood memories are of arias while my mom cooked pasta in the kitchen. And f- when I was a kid, I used to dance and run around to the Carmen Overture and I would watch my father listening to coloratura arias and just trembling with pleasure. So so on my dad's side it was it was a lot of classical and opera. And my mom liked that as well, but she was very into contemporary music. And so we this was these were the days of, of record players. Mm-hmm. So we had Three Dog Night and Jethro Tall and Jesus Christ Superstar and you know I, I came up in the, the Late 60s, early 70s. Where so. was this? This was in Illinois. I, I did most of my young growing up in a little town called Long Grove. We lived on what had been a dairy farm. So there was prairie and woods and creeks. And I spent the first part of my childhood just, just running wild with, with horses and animals and sort of the situation we've recreated in right, Alva. Right. And then – When I was in junior high, we moved to the suburbs. And for me, that was a a disaster because I was this wild country kid who was all of a sudden in a a very different environment. Um, But music was was part of what made that bearable.
0: Hmm. Did you play music or was anybody playing music around you on instruments as a kid?
2: Well, I – when I was maybe in fifth grade or fourth or fifth grade, they – Administered musical aptitude tests to all of us to see if we wanted to participate in the band. And apparently, I scored really well. So, uh, at least on paper, I have musical aptitude. And my prize for having that musical aptitude was being awarded the French horn. Okay. And so, for several years, I played the French horn and I hated it. Did you have
0: aptitude for it while hating it?
2: I you know, I was I was okay and my parents to their credit gave me private lessons. But it was so big and so unwieldy. And it wasn't the kind of thing, at least as a beginner, that you could just take it out like you can a violin or a harmonica and walk up the hill and play to entertain yourself. It was always a supporting member of a larger musical community. And that just that just didn't work for me personally. I, I, I'm i a ferocious introvert. Yeah, so. I was just going to
0: say, you're way too much of a loner to be part of an ensemble constantly. Exactly. <laughs> Let
2: alone with a, a giant French horn. So I abandoned that after a while.
0: How did you wind up in Florida?
2: Well, my grandparents had vacationed here. They were snowbirds. They came down to Marco Island, and they would invite my family for brief periods during the winter. And so we would come, and I just fell f- head over heels with, with Florida. And I decided as soon as my schooling was over that I would get here however I could. And I did.
0: Um, so yeah, so your whole family didn't come down. That's how I wound up here was well, the grandparents, if... then the vacations, then the transplant.
2: Well, that's that's very similar. I managed to lure my mother and my little uh-huh. sister here. So three of us are here and my father's still up north.
0: So how did you wind up in Alva, rural Florida?
2: I, I really – I loved growing up in the country right. and I wanted that kind of a situation. So first, I lived in Buckingham. Um, halfway to Alva. Halfway to <laughs> Alva. And then Roger and I began keeping company and Nash was born. I had my first son. Uh, and Buckingham – this was right before the crash. Buckingham began booming and the the road got really trafficked, and we lost several dogs on it. And Buckingham started getting too citified, so we decided that we would move farther out to the country, and that's how we landed in Alva.
0: And that was about when?
2: Gosh, about fourteen years ago now, I would. And it, say.
0: At the same homestead the whole time out there. Yes, yes. And how big is your property?
2: We've got five acres and it's it's a funny little piece. We're surrounded by woods on three sides. Well that's wonderful. Yeah. And Bedman Creek is across the road. And the the house that's on the property was actually originally built in Fort Myers Beach. It's a it's an old cracker fishing cottage made of heart pine and cypress. And sometime in the eighties, as Fort Myers Beach was getting developed, they were picking up some of those old cottages and moving them and the people who owned it had it jacked up by flint and doyle or one of the building companies and came across the matanzas pass bridge and they plunked it down in alva where it has remained ever since so it was built what in the 30s you know the late 20s early 30s and it's just this little little cottage in the wood but now it's
0: a beach cottage in the rural florida woods
2: exactly well that's
0: Cool. <laughs> I like it. So what's the earliest musical memory you can conjure?
2: Well my mom used to sing lullabies. So um, I I have memories of those. She would sing Molly Malone and these are things of course that I later sang to my own kids. And then opera, as as I said, that that permeated my childhood. And then the radio, I, because we were in Chicagoland, we had the benefit of those great Chicago radio stations. And so Larry Lujak, the legendary disc jockey Uncle Lair, was a, a big part of my childhood.
0: You are um, a storyteller. You're a writer. Um, at what point did you find yourself heading down that path? And did music have any role in that at all? Because I've always found your writing very and your reading very lyrical.
2: That The fact that I am writing for a living was completely accidental. My my path originally was going to be anthropology. That's oh. what I got my undergraduate degree in, anthropology and Spanish. And when I was in college, I spent a year in Mexico City uh, learning Spanish and, and studying archaeology there. And through a long, circuitous series of coincidences, um, I wound up doing this. I, I did not— ever think that I was going to earn a living as as a journalist. I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't study journalism. Uh, I was never even on a high school paper. But mm. it turns out that the kind of writing I do is pretty close to anthropology at its at its best, that I can do ethnographies and study our civilization and get to know its members. So I, I kind of tell myself I'm practicing anthropology anyway.
0: You know, I just uh, had Valerie Alker, who used to be the All Things Considered host and feature reporter here at WGCU, and she has the same exact story, basically. She studied anthropology, never studied a day of journalism, none of that stuff, and then just wanted to get into it and wound up having a whole career in it. So there's definitely some overlap
2: there. Yeah, this is, this is journalism is pretty much the only thing I've done in my adult life. I had, you know, a couple jobs early on. I was a veterinary technician, and um, but nothing that, that really paid the rent in any serious way, but my training was all on the job. And for me that worked perfectly.
0: All right. Well let's get to your first song or your 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 song. I guess I have to rephrase it for this show. So what what is your song?
2: Well my song is Tom Waits What's He Building in There? And before I met Roger, my son DP and I were alone for a while and we had we had a Several Tom Waits albums, but we we wore this. It was the one single track out. It is a sort of as as Tom Waits music is a peculiar amalgam of of found sounds and storytelling. And I very clearly remember sitting on our blue and white painted floor with DP, with his box of wood blocks, and we would construct castles and buildings and knock them down, and we'd put in found objects. So we were sitting on the floor making and listening to Tom Waits, and DP was absolutely captivated by this song. As you will hear, it's a little mysterious.
0: Um, okay, well, uh, let's hear it. What's the title once more time? What's He Building in There? All right, this is What's He Building in There by Tom Waits.
1: What's He Building in There?
0: How old was DP when you were doing this? He was
2: probably two, three, four. Okay, he four. wasn't old
0: enough to know that that was <laughs> something he... <laughs>
2: No, he was like, just, "Mom, all my
0: friends are listening to this, and I'm nah, listening nah, to nah, that." No, 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 no.
2: But the sound of it, and and we we were, you know, we were he was eventually pretty sure he was building some kind of a killer robot, yeah, yeah, and thought that we could hear that word whispered in this. i mean, you know, we were nuts. Well, just, yeah, you know. well,
0: it's beautiful. Um, what role does Tom Waits play in your musical listenership um, in life generally?
2: Oh, I I love Tom Waits. Um, he i actually started listening to him later in life once i was a teen you know mm-hmm. and and th- in the the mixtape era it was solidly punk and and new wave and he was sort of on the fringes of that but i still listen to a lot of tom waits he's he's big for me
0: i haven't listened to a ton of tom waits but most of the tom waits that i've heard sounds sort of dissonant like that is it is it Spoken word more than music. Is yeah, it no, he music? he sings okay. too, and
2: he yeah. sings with that. I mean, he has he has what? a variety of voices that he use. I mean, his his voice. It's like is like performance
0: definitely... art music. Yeah, yeah, of. yeah. Oh, wow. So, uh, what are you guys listening to around the house, and how is it being listened to?
2: Well, uh, I listened to. I mean, I went through the Pandora phase. I mean, for, you know, as as everyone does. First, we had albums, and then we had. Cassettes do you still CD- have albums or we do, records? I, well, we'll get to this later, but our child, the child Roger and I made, Nash, has a record player, and and he is one of these people who's Ah, he's throwbacking. Discovering, <laughs> except for him, it wasn't – I mean, for him, it's, it's something original, uh, but he does listen to vinyl, but – now, what's easiest for me is Spotify Premium. I just, you know, pretty and and YouTube Red to fill in the gaps that Spotify doesn't. What kind
0: of speakers is it coming out of your TV? Is it coming out of Bluetooth speakers around the house? We have a
2: Bluetooth speaker that gets stolen regularly, and I can't find it, so I just listen to it, you know, and with my earbuds or on my phone.
0: Are you like Alexa, play this? Or we no, don't no, have no, a no, smart speaker. No smart speaker. Nope. Okay, just Bluetooth thing to a to, to a thing. Yep. What was the first music you chose to own? That was you made the conscious effort to have it.
2: That's a really good question. I I remember the first music that was gifted to me. I got an album from my cool aunt and uncle. It was I think Paul Simon's first solo album. There goes Ryman Simon. Um, I probably gosh I went through a sort of embarrassing Elton John phase. So you don't have to be I embarrassed th- on okay. this show. We th- could th- be
0: Brick, Elton John fans here. Probably
2: Goodbye Yellow Book Road was the first album that I saved my allowance for. You know, I would get a quarter for vacuuming or mowing the lawn. And uh, I, I purchased that and spent many hours absorbed in that and, you know, trying to interpret the meanings of each song. And um, that, that was probably my, my early chosen and and then again we moved into punk and new wave. Right.
0: All right, we're pivoting to Roger. What was Uh-oh. the first music you chose to own, sir?
1: Well, you know, I I think it was something like uh West Side Story. Uh I bought the album. I I'd seen the movie and I I loved the music. Uh so I got that album and um I listened a lot to an album my, my sister had. My sister's a classical violinist, but uh she got Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm. So I spent a lot of time listening to that and uh, I appreciated it in part uh, because of the people around me, my sister and um, and an Outward Bound instructor that I remember, uh, Arthur Allen, He was from Rhodesia, as they called it then. And he, he had been on Everest expeditions. And I went to Outward Bound uh, in Colorado in the summer of 69. And Arthur was a loner, pretty tough guy, wonderful mountaineer, and he, he loved sounds of silence, um, hmm. which made sense to me for its title, since uh, the Rockies are mostly silent and remote. But the music, you know, the music grew on me, and I appreciated the way it sounded—the guitar and voice, folk kind of almost.
0: Hmm. So you grew up in Colorado. I did.
1: You have deep roots there, right? How yes. Far, I how, how far do your roots go? Um, well. You know, my father was from New York and uh, after World War II, he went to Colorado following a friend of his and met my mother who'd come from a remote cattle ranch in the mountains uh, at about 9,000 feet uh, where actually Amy and I uh, still have a little bit of property. Oh, cool. And I spent a lot of my youth there. So my father met my mother in Colorado and he uh, he brought a freight train of... Of history with him, uh, in the blood, so to speak. Um, his name, like mine, is Roger Williams, and we're uh, direct descendants of the the Roger Williams who arrived in 1634 and really? uh, was chased out of Massachusetts uh, by his fellow Puritans for advocating uh, keeping their promises to Indians and advocating that uh, government and religion should be separate things. It worked better that way, so he founded Rhode Island. Uh, and my dad, who is a historian by temperament, training, and instinct, uh, talked a lot about that. He arrived in Colorado um, with the music of immigrants, with the experiences of city streets. Uh, he, he had been a boxer. He was sort of a feisty temperament, and he was pure New York. So when my mother came off that cattle ranch where the nearest town had been 30 miles away. There was no running water and electricity and met him and brought him to the ranch and introduced him. I think my grandfather and uncles all thought he was a real goof. Well,
0: yeah, there's but, a lot of dissonance, I would think, on or superficially at least. <laughs> yeah, and what,
1: what came in his uh, his cultural package included some classical music he'd listened to as a kid. It included jazz. It included bagpipes. Um, his mother was Scottish uh, and he he brought things that uh, weren 't part of my mother 's family 's heritage um, my mother spent Saturday nights in her youth at the Guffey Square dance where old men would show up with fiddles and banjos and uh, we uh, my sister and I and my younger brother we all we all sort of grew up with this 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 odd mix of uh, of cultures in that way. I remember my my grandmother and my mother singing songs like uh, She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes and uh, John Henry and Red River Valley and uh, things that came out of that folk traditions. And I always loved their voices. Uh, There's a way people spoke English on the top of Colorado that wasn't like anything else I'd ever heard. Hmm. And uh, sort of sweet and cheerful, uh, very upbeat. And the sound of their voices worked in in that music. So... I just sort of naturally thought that that was the music, but my father had a lot of other sounds in his head, and so so those things became part of part of what we heard. And you know, some of these some of these first albums, West Side Story, uh, with a composition by Leonard Bernstein, a New Yorker, uh, was you know, it just made a lot of sense to me, even though I had absolutely no sense of uh, of the bigger culture in the United States mm-hmm. that, that was urban and that was immigrant. Uh, When did you get to experience New York or Big City the first
0: time as a kid or as a person?
1: Well, my dad uh, became a teacher, although he he was a loner all his life and loved the mountains, loved being away from people, sort of like one of my cowboy uncles. Um, He was nevertheless a person not really cut out for ranching. Uh, He (laughs) drove through barbed wire gates. He got trucks stuck in the mud. Uh, He was really tough, but he – he had other kind of things Green going Acres on. Green Acres thing
0: going here. Well, bit. I don't know.
1: I don't know. Not really. I never really liked that show. <laughs>
0: well, I didn't either. I, <laughs> but,
1: I, I hesitated to draw the connection. Fortunately, we didn't always have a television, so I didn't have to see it a lot, you know. But anyway, uh, he he became a teacher, and when I was eleven, he won a he taught high school history, and when I was eleven, he won a John Hay Whitney fellowship to go to Yale study for a year and that included moving the entire family to a clapboard house 30 yards off uh, the beach on Long Island Sound in Brantford, Connecticut. Okay. So we spent a year there. Brantford's about 10 miles north of New Haven and Yale. Uh, and that's the first time I saw New York and it was it was absolutely stunning. We, we just I just couldn't believe it. it what it, year would have this been approximately? 63, 4. Okay. Uh, and so the music of West Side Story, which i, I I became familiar with the next year. Uh, suddenly, made tremendous sense. I right. mean, the, the cacophony and the joy and the anger and the the squalor and and the and the unbridled, un, unhampered uh, sort of sexuality of behaviors on the streets of New York were, were just stunning to me. And um, music that my father had played on record players that his high school students gave him because they loved him and they'd come over to our house. and and give him vinyl and we'd all listen Uh, I remember summer nights digressing here when there'd be a knock on the door and my mother would shout Raj Richard's here and he's got a couple other kids with him and from the back room I'd hear my father God damn it son of a bitch and then my father would arrive at the front door and open it and he'd go, how you doing? Come on in. And two hours later after talking about politics and religion, which Westerners don't do well, uh, and my father did do well, mm-hmm. you know, unafraid of any subject, we we would be listening to music. And these kids would bring the music and they gave him a record player and we had that. So I'd heard Gershwin's uh, Rhapsody in Blue, which to me is just is just – New York City, the, the brawny, beautiful, hopeful, ambitious um, quality that that culture has. And, you know, Aaron Copeland was popular in our house, the, the great New York-born composer who wrote about the West, Rodeo and uh, Billy the Kid and uh, um, those kinds of things. That, that music was just all over our house. So.
0: What about um, popular music, You know, the rock and roll scene coming into view and the folk scene and the stuff like that? Did mm-hmm. that cross your plate? It sounds like so far well, you've stayed kind of within the classical – Folk music
1: was part of – my, my mother's – You know, folk music was part of her growing up and uh, rock and roll didn't really become part of my life until I went to college, although my high school friends listened to it. Um, I, I, I uh, the first time I ever really heard a rock and roll song, it was the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand. And one of my cousins marched into our house and insisted that my father listen to it. And the Beatles began singing, I want to hold your hand, I want to hold your hand, I want to hold your hand, <laughs> I want to hold your hand. And my father's expression um, was the expression of an unlit dynamite stick. It's just waiting to go off. Would somebody please give it a match or get him out of the room? Um, But, you know, he was very nice about it, but but it wasn't a great introduction to rock and roll. Um, You know, my sister brought home Simon and Garfunkel and that sort of rock and roll. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I I love rock and roll now. I absolutely love it. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for, for that, but other things go with it and, I think through friends uh, teaching me and introducing me, uh, I, I, I developed a love, a, a kind of a patch tape uh, ove of, of um, music that celebrates the American experience um, in rock and roll. And I, I love f- feisty, fired up, uh, march into battle melodies. Uh, and that probably comes from hearing my father play the bagpipes a lot. Huh. Uh, bagpipes are sort of a both a melancholy Celtic Gaelic sound and fight music. Yeah, uh, and and rock and roll songs like uh, "Little Pink Houses," uh, which celebrate this American experience. You know, uh, a, a "Little Pink Houses" for you and for me, or. Or born in the USA, uh, Springsteen—a tremendous criticism of us—and yet somehow a feisty celebration of, you know, who we are in our uh, as males in our white T-shirts and our cigarettes and our lips and uh, our our limited backgrounds, um, trying to break out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like a like Michelangelo's. You know, sculptures broke out of marble. We sometimes we are like that in this culture. So th- that kind of rock and roll really appealed to me. Um, sweet home Alabama. There's good people in Alabama. <laughs> My conscience does not bother me. Does yours bother you? Um, Hitch to uh, the fired up guitar is tremendously appealing to me. Um, okay, so you studied journalism, correct? No, I I, I never thought about journalism. Um, I went to the University of Kansas because uh, I couldn't get into St. John's. St. John's uh, in Annapolis, Maryland had a great books program. I was captivated by the idea of reading the quote-unquote great books. great books, but I wasn't smart enough to get in there. Uh, so I went to KU uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, there on the eastern prairie, mm-hmm. uh, where the prairie is, is quite rolling. Uh, And comes out of Missouri and leans out toward the west and rises up about three thousand feet before it hits the mountain six hundred miles away. And uh, KU had a great books program, more limited in scope, a two-year thing uh, that really appealed to me. So uh, I went there. Um, And that cell phone is part of what makes it a great. Can you mute that completely, and then we'll we'll pick that back up where we
0: left it. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's okay. I should have reminded is anything everyone. anything
2: critical? I don't know. Okay.
0: Let's hope not.
2: Yeah. yeah. Nash is at home with his mom. <laughs> oh, so. okay.
0: Well, if you need to check, no, tape, no, this no, is all no. uh, pre-taped, so we've got the yeah, flexibility.
2: Yeah, we can edit if I have a coughing spell.
0: I left my daughter home yesterday for the first time <gasps> by herself all day long. She did five loads of laundry
2: and and, and
0: folded it all. She folded my underwear. Anyway. Good Lord, <laughs> man. Um. Okay, so um, Lawrence, Kansas.
1: So KU, uh, when I think of KU now, I think of uh, stiflingly hot late August summer afternoon, uh, dorm windows open, the smell of uh, marijuana and Cat Stevens and the sound of Cat Stevens' peace train uh, floating out of, of the dorm windows, um, I, I went off to to KU uh, and moved into a ten-story coed dorm. And uh, coed dorms were, were the thing in those days. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> and I had a roommate who did a lot of drugs, and he used to he used to hide his drugs in my ballpoint pens. Uh, and, and, you know, one night I was lying in my dormitory bed and I could hear Cat Stevens and this memorable Cat Stevens down the hall coming echoing down the hall. And uh, it was dark. He was in his little bed, a couple of, you know, cots essentially in a room and the door slammed open and there was a naked woman standing there. And she staggered in and she walked over to me and she fell on top of me. Uh, I, I had learned uh, to sleep with no clothes from, from various experiences and it was hot. And I was mortified. I was petrified. I mean, I had there with me, with the sound of Cat Stevens, everything I'd ever wanted in life, at least from the age of 14 on, a naked woman. And I was was abysmally terrified. And I lay there for a minute and she said, you're not Tom. And she got up (laughs) and walked across the room and fell on Tom. And Tom was not petrified or mortified. And Tom's bed springs creaked for about 90 seconds or two minutes. And she got up and she looked at me and she said, "Well, you're beautiful too." And she left. And the next Cat Stevens song had come on, and it was that one called "Trouble" that you hear in the movie Harold and Maude. Mm-hmm. Trouble. So I fell in love with those songs. What kind I of lo- drugs
0: looked, were in these ballpoint pens? I'm not sure <laughs> because you know I
1: never, I never did. Dr- I was not a drug sampler, a drug person. Um, I like to be clear. I didn't, I didn't like. Uh, I, I just didn't like how people behaved. When they did drugs and alcohol, everybody sort of joining in, and, it, and later I learned, you know, that, that alcohol is a lot of fun. Uh, but at that time, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't see a benefit in it for me. So <laughs> I was sort of a sort of a loner in that regard.
0: Uh, okay, let's get. I love that story. This is a great story. Uh, let's get to your uh, your song. Not your first song.
1: Your song. What are we going to play? Why are we going to play it? Well, West Side Story, written by Leonard Bernstein in music, uh, a musical which they they did in 1957 first a long time ago. Uh, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim was was just powerfully captivating for me I was I was interested in what had happened to my father uh, growing up in Colorado spending a lot of time on the ranch I really didn't have a sense of, of his life uh, so I wanted to know what that was like and West Side Story somehow captured that in music um, and for me music is a language is, is profound and important and it certainly is capable of caring uh, caring Potential for wisdom as English or French or any spoken word. So, West Side Story did something that that had nothing else had ever done before to me. It it brought uh, this tremendous, vibrant American energy uh, to uh, melodies that appeal to me. I think I think sometimes melodies and the way songs go work with individual temperaments, uh, and if you don't have a temperament for a thing, it, it doesn't it doesn't always catch you. But in this case, it, it just, it worked for me. And, you know, a trip to New York City, seeing this, this is why we got we got to this music. I, you know, I have a passion that comes from my father for a nation that, uh, that works uh, on the basis of E Pluribus Unum, out of many one. Uh, so I'm pro-immigrant. Uh, I think immigrants, both in my father's family and earlier in my mother's family have have made a huge difference in me and in the country and in my kids and in my tastes and sensibilities. So New York's an immigrant place and West Side Story is a a song about immigrants. It's a song really about not just the sharks and the jets, uh, the music, not just about Puerto Ricans and whites. uh, It's about blacks and whites and it's about uh, the new and the old and it's about the young and the old. It's about people getting along who would do better if they could and have to struggle to do that. Um, so that's, that's, that's what appeals to me about it. It's got tremendous sweetness. It's got uh, a lot of fight in it. It's got the sound of the streets. I mean, I think, uh, without being a very knowledgeable, uh, musicologist in this regard, I think Bernstein was using sounds that echoed Gershwin and Copeland. And of course, I mean, and he knew those, he knew those people, I think. So, uh, All of that became part of what he produced in the late 50s and I think I really first heard when I was, you know, 12 or 13 along about 65 or something like that. And uh, the late 50s was an incredible time. I mean, this was 1957 when West Side Story appeared in New York on stage for the first time was the year that Eisenhower had to uh, open schools in Little Rock to black children with the United States Army in the form of the National Guard marching those kids in. I mean Eisenhower did that. Uh, it was a, it was the decade of McCarthy, that horrible, uh, horrible blight on American culture and experience, a and political experience uh, who I think, um, you know, wh- whom we should consider occasionally when we think about our current uh, experience in the United States that during the time of McCarthy in the 50s when Leonard Bernstein was sitting around thinking about writing. West Side Story, uh, tremendous divisiveness, worse than we see now, and 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 difficulties. And out of all that comes this big brawny music of the streets of New York, of of kids, of love. Uh, it's it's a Romeo and Juliet story. These are these are human stories. They aren't just American stories. But it was done in such a magnificent American way that uh, you know I, I've really never gotten over it. And this is a, a medley from uh, West Side Story. Yeah, his. Uh, this particular overture is uh, includes several of the of the melodies that uh, appear in his dance and numbers and for the story, um, uh, the song "America," uh, the song "Somewhere," uh, and and some others.
0: Okay, now. As I mentioned before the show, you are uh, extending our record for longest song. So we're going to sit here and listen to this. It's 24 minutes long. You Good beat luck. You beat Lydia Black's Fish <laughs> song by five minutes. All right. Um, uh, you're listening to Three Song Stories. This is Roger Williams' musical selection on today's episode. When was the last time you listened to that?
1: Uh, yesterday. <laughs> How often do you listen to that? Well, I listen to it in my head more a lot more than I listen to it uh, in music. But I would say every three
0: or four months I hear it maybe. Have you seen a, um, um, West Side Story performed
1: um, on stage? I've seen it performed on stage 30 years ago and uh, the movie still captivates me and I'm very eager to uh, – Take Amy and Nash, uh, and my oldest son Evan, if he wants to go, and uh, my middle son DP, if he wants to go, and go see West Side Story because I think that, in addition to being great music and great dance and incredible lyrics, it's also uh, about as current and relevant to our condition as anything sixty years old could be. Is it still playing on Broadway? there 's a new there 's a new show I think that's opening on Broadway a, a new West Side story that uh, but, I, but i'm not I haven 't followed it closely I think I just noticed that the other day somewhere so what a, what great timing that would be for, for yeah. a piece like this um, you know there's the overture there doesn't doesn 't have some of the wonderfully humorous rough songs that occur in it the, the, the challenge to cops that some of these kid kids have there 's a song. Officer Krupke were misunderstood, you know, and they were, they're appealing, oh, poor us, look, Officer Krupke, Krup you, you know, um, that kind of sound, it reminds me of my father, Officer Krupke, Krup you, you know, that kind of New York thing. Yeah. It's nothing like the sound of ranchers in Colorado, in the ranchers in the West in the, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and, and I love that, I love that, you know, that kind of feisty quality uh, that, that resentment of authority and that mockery of it in a way that doesn't do them any good as kids um boy boy stay cool boy uh the song about calming down and not going after somebody with a gun um you know i like to live in america that's one of the greatest dance numbers uh, ever produced uh in a, in a musical on, on Broadway. And when they're dancing to this thing, I like to live in America. Okay. By me in America, everything free in America for a small fee in America. And I've heard it sung horrors for me in America. These Puerto Ricans are sitting around trying to decide whether they really like the wonderful Island of Puerto Rico more or Manhattan. And, uh, you know, they love America, big cars and, you know, potential for money and washing machines, you know, and it's just incredible, you know, mm. uh, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's an immigrant view. You know,
0: um, this is going to be a weird thing to bring up, but um, when we removed classical radio music from our airwaves 10 years ago or whatever, you had, you were one of the most vocal critics. I knew it was a principled position that you had, but now I understand how deep into your roots and your being that that principled position was. So this is illuminating for me and very well, interesting.
1: That's true. And, and, you know, part of this is just uh, my, my propensity for championing the proletariat. Mm-hmm. In this case, yeah. the proletariat would be poor kids that don't have HD radios. Right, right. I went into some places and tried to get HD radios. You don't just – some, you know, Walmart doesn't even carry HD yeah. radios much. And, you know, getting an HD radio so you can listen to classical music, it all sounds great. But nobody's going to do that if, 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 you know, they've got three or four brothers and their, their, their mother's the only parent and she works two jobs. And, you know, it just isn't going to happen. And uh, to me, WGCU – uh, abandoned a great opportunity to uh, support people with less with classical music that that was my view of it uh, and and others you know made good arguments that yeah not as many people appreciate it and want it, and it 's a marketing thing in a way yeah um it's kind of American in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so this is still the
0: greatest radio station anywhere. Well, you know? I, well, thank you. We are Our new nickname is The Little Station That Could.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Um, let me get back, though, before we get to the merged point of this interview. Um, you said you didn't study journalism, but you went to Columbia School of Journalism. So I want to pick up yeah. there and find out how you wound up, and I need to quote this here because you sent it to me after I recorded the intro, how you wound up as the paid hot airbag in chief opinion at
1: Florida Weekly right so uh, you know I had uh, let me describe the story beginning in the student union of KU in my senior year I had to find something to do uh, and I didn't want to keep working on the railroad I wasn't going to be a rancher so I I went into a job fair uh, where I saw the Peace Corps booth and I'd thought about joining the Peace Corps for some time and I went to the Peace Corps booth and and signed up but they rejected me. They said I didn't have any skills. They needed engineers. They needed people at the time, and I looked across the the lobby literally, and there was the Marine Corps recruiting booth. And I walked across the lobby and you know and signed up, and 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 they took me. All I had to have was a loud voice, they said, and you know be able to run three miles without falling over. So I went to the Marine Corps for three years. The men in my family had been, you know, were veterans and. Some had been Marines, and this would have been. uh, I was proud of them. Mid seventies. Mid seventies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, And it it was, you know, it was sort of a remarkable experience. When I left there, I, I came back to graduate school in English. uh, Hated it. Spent a semester studying, uh, and got a fellowship uh, to go to to England and spend a year there, where my oldest son Evan was born, um, at the William Morris House, in. Hammersmith, Kelmscott House, and uh, I stumbled around for years, um, freelancing, teaching. Uh, I, I ended up living outside of Charlottesville, Virginia for a few years and ultimately uh, decided I wanted to, to write for newspapers, but I couldn't easily get a job. So uh, from a job writing for Equus Magazine, from which I was subsequently fired, uh, it's a Horse Magazine out of Gaithersburg, Maryland. I applied to uh, graduate school at Columbia and got in. And I was at that point forty, I think, at least. Okay. And um, you know, they took me. And I'm, as I've said before, here and there, I'm, I'm pretty certain it was a clerical error. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of smart people there, and I sort of stumbled in there, stunned to be accepted. And and it was an absolutely wonderful year. It was, it was great studying journalism there, getting that master's, and meeting some real fired-up writers. And from there, I went to the Asbury Park Press. And from the Asbury Park Press, I took a job in Fort Myers at the News Press. Uh, How did you find that job? Was well, it just a job listing or did you have a no, connection to this area? No, I had no connection to the area. I, I had a girlfriend uh, who was coming out of Columbia. And the, the News Press agreed to hire both of us. Uh, huh. Elizabeth Bryant, she was a health writer uh, at the News Press for about one year before before going on to – you know, to other things. And um, I stayed and appreciated it. And uh, I'm still here. And that's where you met Amy?
2: On the contrary. No. No. Okay. Uh, the, when Roger came to the news press was my brief hiatus when I left the news press. Okay. To go edit Gulf Shore Life. So I was commuting to Naples from Buckingham reading the news press still because I remained an immense fan of the paper and the parting had been amicable. It was just a much better job offer. And I kept reading the amazing stories of this hotshot writer they'd hired after uh, I had he left. He was
0: winning you with words. Well, it, it <laughs> went on to
2: become even more of that because when I left Gulf Shore Life, Roger had left the news. So we, we never, during his entire tenure at the news press, we did not meet I admired his work from afar.
1: And I heard about Amy uh and read her clips and could easily and immediately see that she was, you know, one of the most she 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 has the, the muscle of poetry packed into a prose sentence uh in, in just about anything she she writes. And I don't know anybody else um currently working in Florida that does that as well or, or even can can do it. There have been a couple of writers here and there, but when they let her go, um, when they when they let her run, she can really she can really outride anybody.
2: So we we were familiar with each other's work, but Roger left the news press because his dad got sick and he went home to Colorado to take care of him. And while he was home in Colorado, I came back to the news press again happily. Um, and so Roger stayed in Colorado for a while, and his dad got sick and died, and eventually there was an opening in the lifestyle department where I was the editor and the executive editor said, oh, you've got to try to hire Roger Williams back. He was amazing. And you we perked right up. Him. I did. <laughs> and so I wrote Roger Williams a letter and said, I, I want to offer you a job. Will you please come back? I, I, I think that we'd have fun working together. And Roger Williams wrote me back and said, I'm so sorry, but I have made a commitment to – The New Times over on the other side of the state and I've got to work there for a year and I I can't. Um, But we kept writing. (laughs) You know, he asked me how his friends were doing and what was new at the news press. So you guys,
1: had you met in person yet?
2: Never. never. We'd also never
1: seen each other's photographs. It was just before cell phones, photos weren't created. I didn't know. This is so romantic. (laughs) But we started, um, you know, violating workplace rules. I did at least. And and, uh, pretty soon we were writing each other one or two letters a day and this went on for 60, 70, 80 days. And... And this is letters. Letters. Uh, this we're, is, letters. we're not emailing. No, no, we were emailing. It was... <laughs> yeah,
2: we it was, were emailing. Oh, you were emailing. This was like okay. AOL days. Okay, okay. Yeah. Early, yeah. Early
0: days of digital mail. Yeah.
1: But, but it was, you know, it was, I mean, I, I fell deeply in love with her uh, simply because her writing revealed so much about her and it was so spectacular. So... You know, I was, I was already completely committed to her before I, I ever, ever saw her. Yeah. And eventually I quit that job and came back here uh, and started freelancing and we,
0: you
2: know, we, we all lived happily ever after.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> did you guys pretty much, as soon as you got in each other's presence, you were like, you're the one, you're the one?
2: Pretty much. Pretty much. There were, you know, they're the usual. Because I had had some some unfortunate uh, relationships, and I was trying to be real careful. I had a little kid. Yeah. And I wanted to, and, and I also had a posse of female relatives who wanted to make sure that I was not going to screw up this time. Yeah. So, you know, we waited a little. But, yes, as soon as we walked out onto the Tarpon Street, Pier with That's right across s- from my house. <laughs> some fruit. And yeah, it was. Oh, that's
0: so cool. Yeah. So w- when did music first hit both your ears together?
2: <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I think after our very first meeting, he was going to get into his car and go back and drive to Fort Lauderdale where he lived, and I was going to go back to Buckingham. This was the days when we had cassettes in the car, and we both. Popped in the same John Hyatt cassette that we had been listening to independently. It was his Slow Turning album, and when we realized that that we were we had both been listening to the same music, that was uh, that was that told me a lot.
1: If we were going to pick a song today, and we'd never had Nash, uh, we would have probably picked Slow Turning.
2: Or a thing Which, called thing called love too. Or a thing called love.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but as William Wordsworth, the poet, once said, "The child is father of the man." And Nash has taught us, me at least, a lot about music. So we, we've got a different choice for
2: our last song. But we, but we also, I mean, you gave me a mixtape that mm-hmm. that you know that I listened to, probably until it broke. It had some Greg Brown on it, and so so music was was definitely part of our our courtship and uh so, you know it's it's still as as Roger said our our youngest child Nash is uh, the, has all the makings of an ethnomusicologist and he plays the piano and he has lately really taken a deep dive into american roots music
0: he shares some really good stuff on facebook yeah. i'm facebook friends with him and he's sharing some really neat stuff these days yeah yeah, uh, He plays music around the house. Do you guys play music as well around the house?
2: He plays the piano. Well, the piano is the largest piece of furniture in our living room. Right. And it's a small cottage, as you now know. Um, so, yeah, we, we are treated to, to live music every day.
0: Awesome. And do you
1: play anything, Roger? Uh, I've got a harmonica, okay. which, which I always carry to remind myself of of some of this Roots music um, but he also played
2: the French horn too that was another once? coincidence yeah, that's yeah. true <laughs> yeah, I didn't
1: like it any more than Amy did um, it, it, it's got it's got a few great notes at the beginning of um, the New World Symphony the French horn does you know other than that uh, and Chasing Foxes. I mean, don't they use it for that? Once? I don't know. Something similar. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. So you've alluded now to this song that you've chosen because of uh, – well, what's your third song? It's, it's Y'all's Song.
2: Well, so we, we made this little human, Nash.
0: Mm-hmm. And he's what? 14, 15? He's, he's 16. 16. Is he driving?
2: No, not yet. Not legally. Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and he, as I said, he's lately immersed himself in American music. And one of the musicians to whom he introduced us is John Fahey. And this is a song, it's called Sunflower River Blues, that it's it's a guitar song. And he, Roger asked him why he liked it. And Roger can tell you what he told him. But one of the interesting things about this piece is that Nash is sort of in his head transcribing it or transliterating it, I forget what the correct term is, for the piano. Transcribing, yeah. So we have heard this, I mean we've heard it in its vinyl guitar recording form, but we're also hearing it as Nash plays it on the piano.
1: It and some other things by Fahey. Um, And Fahey really uh, was a lifelong blues uh, lover who knew more about the blues, uh, southern roots blues, Delta Blues and Hill Country Blues and most white people went into the South uh, in the 60s found Skip James, found some other great bluesmen uh, and Nash Nash is uh, very knowledgeable about the blues now and one of the things he appreciates about Fahey is his wide knowledge of other musics besides American roots and folk guitar
0: Okay, well let's listen to it. This is Sunflower River Blues by John Fahey. This is Three Song Stories So I was listening to that, trying to hear him playing that on the piano, and it occurred to me that as a you know a kid that grew up taking piano lessons to then discover old music and then to be able to learn it and then to be able to play it and then for you guys to be
1: able to watch that whole process happening, how cool is that? Well, and and it's it's just one of the great gifts that uh, in a life of, of a lot of gifts as it turns out now uh, for me anyway, and I think for Amy too. <laughs> yeah. But I, I asked Nash this morning to. You know, just write down something before I came in here uh, about Fahey and about the song. And I think these are probably the first first liner notes Nash will ever have written. Uh, he didn't pause. He just sat down, typed out something, and put it in my hands. Uh, and this is this is Nash's view of Fahey and the song. Do you mind if I read Absolutely this? Absolutely not. Uh, I find his music to be extremely sane, having qualities that are universally understandable and relatable without the hindrance of lyrics. He transforms the acoustic guitar into a symphony, playing with a spellbinding ability to articulate raw emotion into musical notes and reflects a multitude of feelings in his songs. Uh, This one in particular, Sunflower River Blues, two low alternating bass notes create a melancholy drone whilst he plays an almost- Angelic melody on the other strings. In my opinion, this represents having strength in the face of deep melancholy or blues. Seemingly simple, "Sunflower Blues" possesses immense emotional weight hidden underneath the un- uncomplicated riff. Uh, so, when I read that, I decided I'd probably just shut up and never say <laughs> anything else about John Day. Uh, but that, have, was, you know, that was that was an might hour have ago. We got to get him on the show. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and and I think it's really true, and that says about music in general, but Fahey in particular. And Nash, um, we've listened to a lot of blues in our house. Uh, and in the mid 80s, a friend of mine and I went into the Mississippi Delta like Fahey had done 20 years earlier without really knowing about Fahey. I'd heard Fahey uh, and I love Leo Kotke. Um, mm-hmm. Fahey was Kotke's mentor. Fahey discovered mm. Kotke and really gave him a career uh, as he did some other people. But we went into the Delta uh, with the hubris of, uh, 30-something white guys that wanted to find blues. And we did. We did find some blues and we found an old man named Willie Foster who, uh, whose harmonica playing can still be heard uh, in a YouTube search. But Willie Foster taught us about the blues and we... I brought this harmonica and this beer. Yeah, I was going to
0: mention that you brought Uh, out a a Pabst Pabst Blue Ribbon and a G harmonica during that song. Yeah, there's a
1: lot about the blues, uh, the hill country blues and the delta blues and the tradition of that music that uh, involves the harmonica and alcohol and many, many other um, problems and joys in life. Uh, Sort of some of the things they face. And Fahey, Fahey faced that too. Fahey had a very difficult life. He was sexually abused. Uh, as a child, and uh, he died in relative poverty. Uh, he spent some of the last years of his life living in cheap hotel rooms, uh, married and divorced three times. Um, a lot of struggles. but the sanity Nash describes in this music is mm. there, uh, and uh, I think for some of the old blues men, it was there in, in a harmonica or a guitar or just those tough lyrics so um, this all appeals to Nash. Uh, it's part of the why he started listening to the blues. And now he knows as much about the blues as anybody I know. Sounds like the apple, what is it, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Oh, I think it falls very far from the tree. He's oh, yeah. way ahead of me.
0: It's just a, and, a different tree. It fell uphill and went to the top and looked over. I haven't made it there yet. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you sometimes ha- carry a harmonica with you. Do you generally carry a chilled
1: Pabst Blue Riffin Oh, always, beer? yeah. <laughs> Usually I have two, Mike. And I'm sorry. I, so this one's really is for Is this you for this this me morning. or for you? No, this is for you. Here. Here. Okay. Yeah, I here. Was good. here we go. go. Ready? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go, Mike. Okay. Oh, yeah. no, we're good. Mike's got himself yeah, a, a PBR. Um, actually, the, the beer of the Mississippi Delta is uh, Old Milwaukee. And ah. in, in those days, they had Old Milwaukee for 99 cents a, a six-pack. Uh, and you're the only uh, – you know, uh, pale skinned fellow I've seen opened a beer in the morning since uh, since I was in the Delta. That's just it's a beautiful thing. This is a good thing to see. Mike having a sip of the PBR here. And while you're doing it, Mike, let me just remind you that we're all on a train through this life. So, uh, I haven't had go. PBR since last time I was in the woods.
2: <laughs> since last time you had PBR. It's woods beer for sure.
0: Okay, so uh, we, we are heading toward the end of this train. What I want to do now is I want to do a speed round, meaning I'm going to throw some questions at you, and I just want fast answers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Album that you will always listen to all the way through, no matter how many times you hear it, without skipping anything.
1: Better ask Amy first. I'll think about that for a second.
0: Bone Machine. Bone Machine. Okay. from the That's the Tom Waits yep. that we just listened to. Okay. Um, you still thinking, Roger? Yeah. Okay. Um, what was your first concert, Amy?
2: Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young.
0: What was your most recent concert?
2: Oh, uh, do we count the Southwest Florida Symphony? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fine. Southwest Florida Symphony.
0: Um, what was the furthest you've ever traveled to see music?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I, I, let me throw that to Roger.
0: Roger, what was the farthest you've ever traveled to see music?
1: Uh, to New York from Colorado to Hear an Opera. And uh, Aida, uh, sung by Bridget Nielsen uh, in those days. What about that album that band. you'll listen to every time? Uh, I'm still thinking, <laughs> okay, uh,
0: what's the most daring thing you've ever done because of music or for music?
1: Fallen in love and married, I think I mean I think music runs all the way through that. It, it, it teaches you, tells you, compels you, leads you uh, and and now uh, somehow and starting in my 40s, I've fallen into to, to fortune. I mean it was you know, now I am found. I have seen the light. Amy, I've got Amy as, as a spouse and you just can't beat that, and that's music. Music does that.
0: Uh, favorite band, if you had to pick one.
1: I, I'm going to have to think about it again because I've got two, three. Four, Roger, ten. you're
0: just too thoughtful. Amy, yep. favorite band, if you had to pick one. Los Lobos. Okay. Uh, most daring thing you've ever done for music, and you can't say fall in love with Roger.
2: Oh, dang. <laughs> um, all right. How about standing up in an open-top car going way too fast, just Screaming to my Sharona. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> um, when was the last time you guys bought music in a
1: physical form? Do you still buy CDs, or is it all digital now?
2: It's been forever. Well,
1: I, I've I've been with Nash shopping, and we we purchased vinyl uh, a couple of times fairly recently. Okay. Yeah,
2: that's true. And and we we bought. I mean, you know, now that he's a vinyl aficionado, we've got christmas tree gifts sure and, is he ordering
0: you know, stuff off like ebay and stuff he does I mean, he's yes kinda, indeed
2: he's, he's gotten some fahey sent over from england and yeah
0: can you recommend a band that you don't think our listeners would re, would know
1: that you would want to draw attention to or a musician yes i i can right off the bat that's one i can answer quickly um dp workman uh and his band chicken boys he does that Gang Green song, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, he's our intern. I know. <laughs> and his band is, is spectacular. Uh, they're doing some rap now, and they're doing some other things, but I, I really— You ought to listen to them.
2: We did not consult about this in advance, but that's what I was going to say too. (laughs) Uh,
0: Okay. So uh, uh, last question for you both. Um, Is there a song that you will always turn off if it comes on the radio or if it comes into your presence and you have control over it being on or off because you don't like the band? It has a negative memory, something that you don't just want to hear. Keep it away from me.
2: Anything by Boston.
1: Any bubblegum music from the 60s? All right. Any final thoughts?
2: Thank you for doing this. I, you know, as your other guests have pointed out, what winds up on the mental cutting room floor is—I mean, I'm still tripping over it. But this was—it was a really interesting episode, and just reminded me how much I love music.
1: I think this is just genius on your part to, to, to do this. Um, Amen. Hey, I'm just one part of this and team. I, I want—I don't want to go without asking you what three songs you would pick. <laughs>
0: You know, I have he, he already did, recorded this. I already recorded my episode with Richard Chinqui in the host chair, Wonderful. and so you'll just have to listen when I we can, release I it. I cannot hmm. wait. And
2: Richard did his, too.
0: Richard, yeah, he was our yeah. pilot episode. Yeah. That's how yeah. we, we didn't know what we were getting into when we did that. That was just like a, let's throw it at the wall and see what sticks, and now here we it are chugging great. down the track. Did you feel at all cheated by not having all three of your songs, Amy? That was one of my questions I wanted to ask is because you guys are the ones that you know you 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 didn't get three songs you had to you guys had to do some work some extra work,
2: oh sure, and yet the idea that we we got to talk about how we were formed musically and how we came together musically, and that's that that's something other people didn't get to do is talk about how music has intersected in their lives and with the people they've loved so that was okay i mean okay. sure but this this made up well for it, it just
0: it was the first thing that popped into my head as an out of the box way to do this because you guys are like you know local storyteller royalties so you know it's three song stories so we don't want to bring it all together amy roger thank you so much
1: thank you mike thank you
0: we record and produce three song stories in the WGCU studios on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast, University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is our show's producer, director, and co-creator. Tara Calligan and Anna Bejarano are our online content producers. Our executive producer is Chris Duffus. Our theme music was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Before today's parting tune, I want to remind listeners that we want to hear from you. Do you have a great song story? I know you do, one that takes you back to a time, place, memory, and story. If so, record it onto your phone and send it to mysongstory at wgcu.org. We're going to start using listeners' parting tunes in future episodes of this podcast. My parting tune this week takes me back to my very first real job. I and my old friend Jeff got hired on at the McDonald's on US 41 in Fort Myers, across from Hill Street. We lived just up the road, and neither of us could drive yet, so we could walk to work. Had that job for a little less than a year. It wasn't entirely awesome, but parts of it were pretty cool. There was a woman named Rose who pretty much ran the grill. She kind of ran the whole place, really. She'd worked there longer than the manager was old, or just about, anyway. The normal paradigm was cross-training, meaning all new hires like me had to learn all the stations, fries, drive through front registers, etc. Well, I had a knack for cooking, and Rose saw that and took a liking to me, so she overruled the youngster managers and kept me by her side, which I loved, because the last thing my 15- and 16-year-old self wanted to do was interact with customers, some of which were my contemporaries. Well, my song choice might seem strange for such a story. It's Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. It takes me back to that time and always will because it was on heavy rotation on the Piped In Music channel the entire time I worked there, which literally meant hearing it about once an hour. So ever since then, whenever I hear it, I'm back in the kitchen at Mickey D's with Rose, flipping burgers and cracking eggs from McMuffins. This is Fast Car by Tracy Chapman from her 1988 self-titled album. I'm Mike Canire. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. I hate that song so much. Why?
2: I just, ugh. It just, ugh. It makes me like want to cry. It sounds like nails in a chalk Like, it's just.
1: Come on, give us a little
0: bit no. more.
2: <laughs> no, no, because I can sing it. You know I can, but I will not.